How are you? Thanks for tuning back in to Wisco Weekly. Happy New Year for the first time that you get to hear from me. You were just listening to Casey Parnell and Kerosene Creek. Casey Parnell is a singer-songwriter out of the Northwest, although he's based in Nashville. I want to try to bring to you a lot of independent music uh, this coming year in 2021. Why? One of the reasons is that I just I love music. And it's hard to find new artists these days, especially it's hard to find a good, complete album. One of the things that I like to do when I listen to a new artist to kind of gauge how good they are is I like to YouTube them and find a good live performance and see how they do live. I think that is to me is one. It's a big criteria on how well I will accept you as a new artist. Anyhow, listeners, welcome to 2021. I have such a enthusiasm going into this year and what I want to accomplish with this podcast to you, the listener. And it really is going to be centered around the theme of make the investment. Make the investment if that is with time, if that is with money. If that is make the investment in yourself, if that is make the investment in the stock market, if that is make the investment with your family, whatever the case, the theme that I want to try to hopefully motivate you for this year is to make the investment, whatever you do. You know, there is a a saying that I heard from Olivia Munn, of all people, the actress, where she said, if you bet on yourself and you lose, you learn the lesson. If you bet on yourself and win, you win big. And that's why, again, this year, between the guests that I'll be bringing to you, between some of the mini series that I'll be producing, between some of the new programs I'm going to be giving to you guys this year, it's all about making the investment. And part of making the investment is upgrading you people to business class. Business class is just another lifestyle that people can aspire to or they can live out. And I really do like this idea of business class because I want to provide you something that's of higher quality education, of higher quality information, but yet still provided to you in a very fun and entertaining way, right? That's kind of the When I think of business class, I think of that cliche of work hard, play hard. And that's what I want to provide for you and give back to you this year on the show of Wisco Weekly. So business class, you're in for a good treat, not just this episode, but for the rest and the remainder remainder of the year. Now, there's a few things I want to get through, just a couple of announcements. One is if you're not already subscribed to my newsletter, please do look to subscribe, add your email Go to WiscoWeeklyPod.com and you can find a area where you can submit your email and subscribe to my newsletter. There are some quirky bits I want to give to you this year. Again, as my business class listeners, it can range anywhere from things that are going on at business schools. It could be stock tips or it could even be a recommended Spotify playlist. And that actually is going to be one of the things as part of this last uh, newsletter that you'll get. My guest that you'll get to hear from in just a moment, 
is also a part DJ, part-time DJ. And so he has developed a little playlist on Spotify. And I thought that was actually a really cool thing for people to have and in case they want to add it and like it uh, and use it in their subscription in Spotify. So if you're subscribed to the newsletter, you'll get quirky things like that, like a Spotify playlist. And I promise you that when that newsletter is sent out, it's not just a matter of the quirkiness and sometimes the oddity of it or sometimes the helpfulness of it. At the end of the day, I will try to make it as powerful as I can, as impactful as I can to you. So again, go to whiskaweeklypod.com, look to subscribe to my mailing list. Uh, Next thing is be sure you stay tuned at the end of the episode. As I get to know a lot of guests on the show, it's great to talk to them about their business experience and their business acumen and sharing some of the different you know, macro trends going on in the automotive and mobility space. But it's also important that we get to know these guests on a little bit more of a personal level. And so there's a new segment that I'm introducing at the very end of these interviews that's called Bedroom Sessions. These bedroom sessions are going to be discussions, conversations that I get to have on a personal level with my guests on what they would like to achieve with their money. So again, this kind of fits the whole theme of making the investment. So that's at the very end of this episode. Be sure you stay tuned to the very end so you can hear more about my guest and where my guest wants to spend their money, his money, in order to accomplish uh, his dream. Last announcement, my guest next week is Michelle Corson. You won't want to miss that episode. She's an entrepreneur, a founder, a CEO of On The Road Lending. They provide loans with a flat interest rate to low-income, disadvantaged people. Essentially, a lot of folks who may have to go to the subprime subprime market where they can now go through on-the-road lending. On-the-road is only based in Texas at the moment. However, her journey to build this company was super, super interesting and unique. And I think that if you are an entrepreneur in general, you may want to hear about how she was able to build this solid, solid foundation where, again, at the core of it was money. So that's next week, Michelle Corson on the show. All right, business class, thanks for tuning in for this year. Thank you for your support of Wisco Weekly. Please, if you find it in your lovely hearts, be sure you do provide a rating and review of Wisco Weekly on Apple Podcasts. So, Without further ado, let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mobuhai, bienvenidos, vitaita, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Yes, listeners, you're getting an upgrade to business class. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wisco Weekly. I'm so happy to be here for you for 2021. This is the first official episode of the year. I've went into retreat to plan out some very big things for later this year. And part of that means you get upgraded to business class. Listeners, on the show today, I have a wonderful, wonderful guest. I've had the chance to follow him for a little bit. I'm quite the geek about his particular topic, so that's why I was looking absolutely forward to this particular episode. So without further ado, 
My guest today can best be described as eclectic. Why, you say? He studied economics and religious studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Rhodes is a national four-year private co-educational residential college committed to the liberal arts and sciences. Their highest priorities are intellectual engagement, service to others, and honor amongst them. After Rhodes College, my guest received an MBA from the Red McComb School of Business at the University of Texas. The McComb School of Business has an eye toward the future while keeping a foot grounded in the past. The graduate program has a focus on 21st century business topics like blockchain, analytical technologies, and global business, while also maintaining acumen in traditional industries like healthcare, insurance, and real estate. Not to be outdone, he's put in the legwork and started at the bottom of the food chain working as a summer associate at Deloitte back in 93. He's been involved in the real estate world for 20 years, and he now serves as the chief economist at Cox Automotive. So he's an academic, he's an economist, and we all know that every academic and every economist is also secretly a disc jockey. Yes, that's right. My guest goes by the name of DJ Smokey Smoke. What's an eclectic individual we have on the show today? Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Mr. Jonathan Smokey Smoke. How are you, sir? I am great. Thank you, Dennis. What a wonderful introduction. Well, sir, of course, I had to throw in the DJ Smokey Smoke because you kind of break the stereotype when I think of a DJ these days. So... Well, I'm not exactly the uh, kind of new form DJ. My my hat tip to all of the creative uh, DJs in the world. I feel like you know I'm 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 doing them not justice uh, by calling myself a DJ. But I am a real DJ, old school. Uh, I've done it since high school. Um, but generally, what I like to do is play music that make people happy and get them to dance. Um, so. Through the years, uh, you know, being into music meant collecting uh, music and being able to play. So I got really good at playing 80s parties as my friends turned 30, 40, you know, now 50. Um, But, you know, as my kids grew up, actually, they were part of the inspiration that got me much more into it and and buying equipment and doing things like that because uh, they, they had school dances. In fact, my son... Uh, was elected to uh, president of his middle school uh, on the campaign of having good parties. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) you must be a proud father on that one. I love that. (laughs) So we made it happen. And trust me, man, DJing a party with middle schoolers is probably the hardest DJ job in the world because these kids know the latest music. Mm. And of course the teachers are watching to make sure you don't let anything inappropriate play. So, <laughs> so, well, so I don't know how this works now. Like, so middle school dances, if you do play like a slow jam, is, is it, is the rule still like arm's length away from one another? Do they even dance to slow jam? Uh, they don't want slow jams. They don't want slow no jam. <laughs> Anything but that. Oh man. Well, got a, a hard crowd to please amongst middle schoolers. I imagine 
that has trained you well into the automotive world and trying to please all the, all the, you know, the entire ecosystem from tier one down to tier three. I'm sure that's also a hard crowd to please there. Uh, Well, Jonathan, there's something kind of interesting that as I was doing my research on you that uh, I wanted to maybe start off with. And it's something that I I haven't heard you speak about before, and, and that is kind of your academic background. So you started out at Rhodes College, and Rhodes College is, uh, you know, and 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 you studied what was it, economics and religious studies. That's right. How, how did you how did you get into that? Oh, I definitely didn't start school saying that's what I wanted to do. Okay, um, I I just ended up with two topics that absolutely uh, on the spectrum um, were on opposite ends of each other in terms of uh, like literally on our school, uh, we had professors that were economics and professors that were religious studies and both of them couldn't understand why I was majoring in both of those things. Because <laughs> right. like, I would go from a class, uh, w- one of my favorite combinations was to go from econometrics, which is, you know, all of the hardcore statistics and modeling and, and forecasting. I would go from that to feminist theology. And, um, you know, but, <laughs> but that was really pushing you to think, to use every part of your brain, um, to understand historical trends. And, and um, if, if you understand how, how religion was influencing things that happened in the world over time, uh, also, how the economy was influencing things. For me, it helped to help. It helped to explain the universe. And if if there was one thing that you would get to know me about, is I'm I'm always inquisitive, trying to understand, trying to make sense, um, and get better at predicting what's going to happen in the future. And and um, so those were two topics that just piqued my attention. And screw the you know future potential clear career path because <laughs> there there wasn't exactly. Uh, one coming out with a liberal arts degree in both of those majors, but you know, things worked out pretty well for me. Is there, was there something like awe inspiring uh, that you came across during your uh, collegiate studies, uh, be it learning on the religious side or learning on the economic side that has like stuck with you till this day? I would say both did. Uh, I had the opportunity through Rhodes actually to spend some time abroad as well. Mm-hmm. And that really broadened my horizons um, to see uh, more history, more things that were different on the way that I was raised. Frankly, the part when I started in the re- religious studies, it was also a part of a personal journey to better understand my own history and to make sense of, of my own families and, and traditions and and what what I had been taught, and to sort of to to make sense out of my own beliefs in the world. Uh, talk to any religion major, uh, and they'll tell you they all go through um, kind of a, their their own uh, experience of of really questioning what they believe and and uh, who who they are. So it's it's a real discovery process. And then economics, it was the perfect combination for me because it was both, and I had fantastic professors that really uh, poured poured into me. And I got both the theoretical side. So I got books behind me here, if you want to get into it with uh, Adam Smith, 
Ludwig von Mises, you name it. Uh, we were reading the you know original writing um, and really attacking things from a theory perspective. But then we also had the statistics and the econometrics and um, you know the heavy numbers part of it. And I really, I really enjoyed that. But it was funny what both of those things taught me at the end of the day was I did not want to be a professor. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to. No offense to those fantastic professors that taught me so much. I wouldn't be who I am today without them, but I wanted to have an impact. I, I wanted to do things um, that I could see, uh, you know, the results in the, in the real world. So that's, that's, or, that's, that's why I ended up taking a, a year. I was working in advertising and I said, how am I, how am I really going to be able to do something in the business world? That's where I went and got got my MBA. Ended up into consulting, and consulting is very much, a, you know, apply every skill you have, on yeah, whatever right. the yeah. whatever's most pressing at the time. And that was the 1990s when, um, quite literally, some of the classes I had at UT, we were using early forms of the World Wide Web that wasn't really available yet, and doing some things in client uh, server computing and and the like that was absolutely gonna define like the next to 10, 10 or 15 years. And uh, that was really helpful to really uh, see how those trends were go going to impact companies. And I just so happened as it often happens in consulting, you end, up, you end up being an expert in a particular industry if you do two projects in a row. <laughs> and oh, interesting. I never really uh, th thought about it like that. Very first client was technically an automotive. Uh, my very first client was was Nissan. Um, but soon after that, I ended up uh, doing some construction and real estate related projects. So within a year, I was dedicated to real estate and, um, you know, ended up spending over 20 years uh, in, in my career doing, do, working in all parts of real estate. Um, so it's it's been an interesting journey, and I guess you can say I've been an, an eclectic learner throughout that that whole period. All right. So my my characterization at the beginning was fairly accurate. Spot on. Okay. Interesting. You know. So at UT, then um, was there any particular sub uh, industry then that you were involved in? Was it was real estate the kind of the the sub industry? No, no. Actually, uh, at the time. It's funny hearing you read the description now for the school, you know, focusing on blockchain back then, I was in the cutting edge group that was focusing on technology and, and uh, leading uh, with technology. And, and, and they chose 24 students out of the entire class of like 600 people, but they, they had an, an additional kind of review of those of us because we were going to get to occupy what at the time was called classroom 2000, uh, which meant at every one of our seats, we had both a PC and a Mac, um, and we were connected to the internet and we were doing things uh, with professors in Europe and, and some other places in the world uh, and doing some really fascinating stuff with technology because some big tech and consulting firms were heavily involved. Um, but why was I chosen for that group? Frankly, I think I was chosen for that group because I was one of two token liberal arts majors. <laughs> so we had military, you know, proven people who, who could lead and manage. We had a hardcore set of engineering uh, number crunching types and they needed two of us uh, to be able to speak and help everybody write and present. Um, so 
I really had a boot camp in terms of, of learning things that I absolutely tried to avoid at Rhodes, like accounting and <laughs> finance um, to, to get the basics. But, you know, it was an incredible experience. But technically, my specialization was in information systems management. Okay, so so we have a little bit of background. So th- thank you for that, because uh, hopefully now as we get into more of the substantive part of our discussion, I actually will have a little greater context into the inner workings of then, you know, I guess how you think about things. So uh, you're a chief economist at Cox Automotive. Uh, you're you're very well written. You're very well spoken. Definitely, uh, critical thinking as a, is at the top of your list. In terms of your skills, you you also worked in the real estate industry, and I think one of the things that I you know would be interesting to hear your perspective on would be the intersection of the housing market and the auto sales market. You know, can you maybe share with us what what do you see as a correlation between these two? Oh, absolutely, and happy to talk about it. And it's funny, I've been here almost four years, and. And you're one of the first people to ask me to even explore the, <laughs> the topic. You know, that, that's almost exactly what I was thinking. You know, I've, I've had the chance to see you on uh, CBT and Auto News and, you know, many of the other outlets, right? And, and researching your background, I'm like, well, this guy was involved in real estate for a long time. Why is it that he hasn't spoken about those two intersections? Because there is an intersection between the two. Maybe... There's maybe obvious ones and maybe non-obvious ones, but again, like I, I, I would probably point out one or two things, but I'm sure you could go like ten levels deep, and that's you know I think that's important for people to hear about. Well, and in fact, I think there's a lot we can learn about what's happened in the last year uh, that's that's very informative about how those two industries relate to one another. So, you know, as I started at Cox, actually, one of one, a lot of people said, "Why on earth are you?" Are you deciding to leave real estate uh, to go to go do something else? In, t- in in essence, you know, establish yourself from scratch almost uh, altogether. And I was I was intrigued, and there was a lot about automotive that uh, always was of interest to me. I've always been interested in cars, um, and frankly, uh, cars are way more exciting than houses. Um, so so from that perspective. Yeah, that's uh, just a sales pitch now. And, Come on now. You know, remember I was doing music as part of my real estate and the songs about cars are so much cooler than the songs about houses. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so so there's that too. Um, but I had a frame in my mind as I started with Cox that was, what's the same, what's different? Um, because then it would help me sort of like build upon the things that I knew and understood well. So for example, obviously both automotive and housing and real estate are connected to credit. Uh, Both are the two largest purchases that the typical person is going to make in their lives and extremely dependent on credit. So um, understanding the dynamics of credit is absolutely key to understanding what's happening in real estate, what's happening uh, in the automotive world. Um, Related to that, it's obviously very important to consumers. Uh, um, because it's a big item. Um, Automotive, the the combination of those two sort of define who you are, how you raise your household, what economic opportunities you have, how you establish and build upon credit 
those those things are sort of instrumental to uh, you know our our lives. So everybody can can relate to it. Um, and then speaking of relating to it, obviously these two industries, you know, if you had to single out, are two of the most important industries consistently to the economy. Uh, and that's absolutely the case, not only for the U.S. economy broadly speaking, but if you think about both of these sectors, they they play an enormous role in in local economies, and that's where some interesting parallels are there too. Because if you think about the structure of the real estate market and the structure of the automotive market, um, yes, they're different entities, but they're very much local. Um, they they are led by entrepreneurs, whether they're dealers or uh, their real estate agents or or brokers, they're very much plugged into their local communities. They are extremely active in local and state associations that play a big role in national associations. And um, there's a lot of there's a lot of the inner workings of the industries that are so eerily similar. Um, and I I did a stint. I I spent almost six years in Washington D.C. Um, so there, there's obviously a lot of parallels with regards to how what's going on in Washington influences the industry and how the industry is constantly trying to make sure that what, what happens in Washington is, is, good, is good for the business. So there's huge, there's huge parallels there. Uh, and the building block on the demand side to make sense of the market, I've always been a big believer in understanding the source of demand, understand the consumer understand how demographics are shaping trends um, that, are, that are happening and therefore uh, predictable. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, credit plays a big role in that. Um, and a lot of those things, while the facts may be slightly different in automotive versus uh, real estate, uh, the, the whole concept is fundamentally built on, we sell cars to people and uh, understanding the dynamics of why they buy and how they buy and, and uh, when they're going to buy um, are hugely important to being able to make sense of what's going on and to pre predict the future. Um, so that's, that's sort of a rundown, I think, of the, of the key similarities. Um, then we can talk about the differences. So, well, so then if I, if I pick apart um, what you're, what you're, which you're summarizing there, surmising there. If I had no knowledge whatsoever of the automotive market and the auto sales market, but I do know right now that the that interest rates are low, that has created a um, you know a lot of buyers in the market for homes. So hence there are lots of buyers. I would then say that there is a linear relationship between home sales going up and then hence auto sales going up. Would you say that that is the relation? One of the, you know, I guess is that a relationship that you? No, would that's, see? that's absolutely correct. I mean, what would any economics presentation for real estate or automotive uh, feature early on? Employment trends, interest rate trends. Uh, consumer sentiment, um, those, those facts are absolutely uh, related because both businesses are related to the economic cycle. And uh, you are going to set, you're going to have periods where you have a growth in sales and you have periods of declines. And actually the cycles, 
the, the cycles are almost identical. Uh, yes, you can have severity of cycle differences. Like, you know, I lived through in the housing market, the mother of all downturns uh, in, the, in the Great Recession, which was caused by housing. Um, but if you look back historically, what's the single best predictor of when vehicle sales are going to decline? A recession. <laughs> It's quite, it's not difficult sure. uh, whatsoever um, that the fundamental economic cycle is really defining a lot of what's taking place. So yeah, you were spot on in, in understanding that those two things are correlated. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that an, an auto purchase is go going to be directly related to a home purchase. Right. Uh, but at, that's actually one of the insights that I would share. Part of what we did while I was at Realtor.com was, was we did find that there was a tight correlation that within a year of somebody moving into a new home, they were far more likely to make a vehicle purchase. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that when you make a home purchase or you simply are moving, you, you typically uh, are doing that because something about your life has changed. You've gotten a new job, you've gotten married, you've, you've had a kid or a second kid, you've gotten divorced, you've retired. There's something that fundamentally caused you to seek out another place to live. And then when you move into that place, suddenly other aspects of your life are changing your transportation needs. Maybe your commute is longer, maybe it's shorter. Um, maybe you really don't like the parking situation and that massive eight person SUV is no longer working. That was the case when I moved to DC and, and my wife had an eight person SUV and uh, <clears throat> was unable to not hit the fence and other things around our house. Uh, so we had to get a smaller car. Um, so, or, or you just have more kids. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> um, but guess what? I think that there's a credit story to the relationship we discovered because uh qualifying for a mortgage, and we're probably going to get into this later with regards to the role that credit plays, but uh, qualifying for a mortgage and getting the best possible interest rate means doing your darn best to have the best credit score you possibly can have, because it'll make an enormous difference uh, over time. Um, uh, no, no question. So people don't buy, it. people who prepare don't buy a car and then buy a house. They buy a house and then buy a car um, because that's the way the credit um, essentially works most optimally uh, on, on behalf of the consumer. So I think there's another reason why we discovered that it was really move first, car second, uh, that tended to be what, um, you know, what consumers do. And at Realtor, we were of course, very much focused on the single family, people who were buying houses. Uh, so of course that connection is gonna be very strong. So what's happened in the past year? We've had the most home sales that we've had since before the Great Recession. Uh -huh. uh, and lo and behold, automobile sales have been strong and continuing to stay strong. It, uh, you said that there's, there's um, it, it was a year after the home purchase. So technically, so, so technically with a lot of, you know, homes being purchased, what probably it was start of, you know, summer and then, well, it's always summertime is always the busiest, right? So, so technically this coming summer, then there could be a wave of auto sales. Absolutely. Assuming we have the supply to support it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> we have not used up uh, the, 
the demand in that market. And it's a it's a very um, supporting cycle uh, because it 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 then feeds uh, strength in the economy. Because when people are buying buying cars and and buying homes, they're they're typically investing in other things too, which supports the local economies, which creates a positive cycle and more people uh, kind of get into it. And uh, the housing world was essentially uh, in a funk for 12 years um, <laughs> uh, since roughly two, 2006. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a front row seat in all of that. So if you want to get, get into it, happy to talk about it. But Wait, starting in 2006 or, or ending in 2006? In my mind, 2006 was the peak of of the kind of positive movement in housing. And technically, you know, a lot of things didn't unravel until uh, 2008 and 2009. But the housing world really started to show signs of of falling apart early in in 2006 because of the subprime um, mortgage rate um, lending and, and all that stuff. A housing bubble that was absolutely related to what was going on in credit at the time, but you know, it's it's it was a combination of things. It wasn't just credit. I, I used to tell uh, realtors that I worked with to they needed to buy the movie The Big Short. You know, the book by uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, great movie, great movie. I, I watched that probably at least once a year. And I just I, I like I, I, I always learn something new because it's pretty heavy. Oh, my recommendation was watch that every six months if you were in the housing market. Although I will say there's one particular part of the movie I still can't understand. And it's probably because I'm using my eyes than my ears. And it's the scene with Margot Robbie. But continue. <laughs> no, we, we won't get into that. I was thinking you were going to get into derivatives and now I'm completely. <laughs> um, but what we could see clearly, and you know, I I will be the first to tell you, I did I knew we were going to have a downturn. I did not understand how deep and how bad it could possibly get. Um, but what we were fundamentally doing was was we were fueling this level of speculation that then translated into overbuilt, and we in essence created about two to three million more homes than we actually had real households to occupy them. Hmm. And there's there's one of the big differences between housing and auto is that housing is domestic. Uh, we, do, we cannot, we do not export excess houses. <laughs> and so if you've that. overbuilt to the tune that we overbuilt uh, as, as, an, as an economy, um, you essentially needed no new construction for several years uh, for, uh, for, for normal demand just to kind of catch up to things. And of course, what fueled that was speculation and the ever, uh, ever increasing rise in prices that wasn't built upon a solid, true foundation. And as soon as the music stopped, those, uh, those things started to fall apart. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the, the big short captured that part of it extremely well. Uh, the, the scene in the in the subdivision in in Miami. I think I was. I think I visited that subdivision <laughs> uh, where they were driving around and they were like uh, looking at all the houses and and the, there was a dude watering his lawn and yeah. that's right. And he wasn't. Yeah, he he was he was not the owner uh, of of the house. Yes. Yeah. Now, so what about the rental market? Is there any takeaways from? Because I imagine right. What's 
you know, some of the trends that have happened here, right? You, you have a lot of people that were living in cities that moved away from the city and now they're either living at home or they went to the suburbs, but they didn't buy, they're, they're still renting. It, are, what correlations are there between the rental market and auto sales? So first, the, the, the auto market is much more democratic than the, uh, um, you know, vehicle ownership in the United States is more than 90%. Um, so uh, everyone, renters, homeowners, alike uh, owns vehicles. Uh, but when you drill into who buys new vehicles, uh, that's where it is almost entirely homeowners uh, because it's, it's older households, higher incomes with um, good credit uh, that basically uh, dominate the new vehicle market. So uh, renters uh, historically have been much bigger part of the used vehicle market, but uh, you know, related to a topic on, uh, that we might get to on affordability, uh, the vehicle market has traditionally had entry-level vehicles, and that's where uh, I think you would find the strongest relationship. But, um, you know, that's, that's one of the aspects of what we've lived through uh, in the past almost 12 months now, uh, is that what um, we've gone through a downturn and a recovery that has played out very differently for people at different ends of the income spectrum, which is also related to age, demographics, uh, and, and credit. And so unfortunately, one really binary indicator is that renters on average have, have, have fared very poorly uh, relative to what homeowners uh, have fared. And that's without taking into account that your home appreciated in value and the homeowners tend to also own stocks. I mean. It's been it's been great uh, for that side of the K, but the the renter has has been far more likely to to work in a sector that's negatively impacted. Um, was supported initially by the CARES Act and the fiscal support that we had, but then after July, when the enhanced unemployment benefits started to expire, that income support started to dissipate. Uh, it literally went away entirely. Uh, you know at and right at the day after Christmas, uh, ironically, until the next uh, stimulus package was signed into law a couple of days later. So there has, there has definitely been periods of, of challenge and uh, that's, that's where we have the bulk of the unemployment. So the multifamily part of real estate has been the weak part of real estate on the residential side. Um, of course, I'm not even getting into what's happening on retail and office space that's that's also been clearly impacted by the pandemic do you fear at all uh some of the you know what could come about with regards to the inflationary aspects of of auto sales where you know i guess one of the things that i think about here is that you you know, as you've alluded, homeowners, people that are buying houses, then tend to buy new cars. They tend to have better credit. They're going to be doing great. The the renters who are buying used cars or who might not have a car, who can't buy a car for some time, and when they do, they're going to be buying a used car. They'll, their credit is not is not going to be as high. There is going to be kind of this disparity that will be created between these two groups. And yet, one of the things that will not subside is the prices of vehicles that, you know, we're going to continue to make vehicles 
more expensive throughout the years. And so hence inflation is really going to be a big killer of upward mobility. And I, I, I personally fear that. Yeah, absolutely. I think affordability as a topic is one of the biggest concerns about how the industry is going to evolve. And fundamentally, if you think of transportation as as a core need of an individual or a household in the U.S., it's it's uh, it's on a path where it's going to be uh, more and more expensive. Um, you're you're absolutely right, and the. What we've gone through in the past year has only made that worse because we have simultaneously reduced supply. Um, you know, the math isn't completely done on exactly what 2020 cost us, but it's at least 3 million vehicles did not end up being produced that otherwise would have been delivered to the United States, either made here or uh, shipped here. 3 million new vehicles, that is. 3 million. And when you when in essence, we didn't have just static demand, we had an increase in demand because suddenly you had people who might've been okay using uh, ride sharing, using public transportation, using whatever, because of the pandemic, now they, they needed to have their own personal uh, vehicle to travel in. So we had a net increase in that demand. The stimulus put more money in people's pockets uh, the support from the enhanced um, unemployment benefits, which were absolutely called for and needed and still needed until we get to the end of this uh, cycle, means that people still had cash to be able to pay. Uh, credit was still flowing because last year is going to go down in the record books as one of the best years ever for consumer credit uh, performance. Um, so lenders continue to be willing uh, to lend. Um, but all that did was create even more demand for vehicles, uh, which we just mentioned because of what's going on in housing is not going to be slowing down uh, in the year ahead. So we, we have more demand, less supply. What happens when that, when that occurs? That's economics 101. Prices, right, price, go up. prices go up. And they went up in both the new and the used market. And those two things um, are, live in a, the auto market is an ecosystem. Um, you can't push one thing in one area and not have it come around and have an impact somewhere else. And when prices are going up as strongly as they are in new, and that includes incentives coming down as well. So it's not just the sticker on the vehicle. We also had less incentives last year. We also had um, the, less, the least amount of discounting that dealers have done uh, for at least seven years. So the real inflation actually was even worse than what the basic metrics uh, are implying. In other words, other than um, you know the the great reports, it wasn't technically a great year to buy a vehicle last year um, because you weren't getting a great deal uh, by by any stretch of the imagination compared to the last several years. Unless you bought at the end of March or sometime in early April, uh, then you probably got a heck of a deal. Interesting. So because if you, let's, let's say you bought in the fall, because there weren't as many discounts, because there weren't as many incentives, then technically you were buying at a higher price for a new vehicle. Therefore, you're going to take a bigger hit for depreciation. And hence, therefore, that's, you, you're, you're paying more for the car. Is, is that part of the inference? 
definitely relatively speaking, you were paying more than what people were paying just a month before or a few months before. Uh, some factors that were working in your favor was that we did see interest rates, um, you know, in, generally improve. Those with absolute the highest credit, so a FICO score above 760, they they had fan, they had zero rates um, mm -hmm. essentially starting in March and it and it and it's still going on. Nine percent of the purchases so far in January have been with a zero uh, APR, uh, but those a, those deals are not going to people who don't have uh, perfect mm -hmm. credit. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone else basically saw better rates as we approached the end of December in our average rate metrics had the best rates uh, for the year. So that piece at least was modestly improving. Um, but generally speaking, no, it, it, it was you were paying more for the vehicle, but um, people had the cash, people had the need. Um, and so it wasn't that it, it was a bad environment. It's just from a deal perspective, it wasn't the best possible. Yeah. Yep. I concur uh, with that. Time. Now the depreciation question is an interesting one because um, you know we are likely not done with strong uh, price performance. Um, in fact, this spring is probably going to create some eye-popping, uh, especially year-over-year -year price comparisons um, because we're shaping up. You know, we normally have uh, a tax refund season. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Being in the industry, you've heard you've heard how crucial the tax refund season is. Well, a lot of the people that I talk to essentially are describing we're going to have three tax refund seasons back to back to back this year because uh, to start the year, the we had stimulus. the effect of the stimulus package that was signed at the end of December. Then we're going to have the traditional tax refund season. And now we'll at least get some portion of what President Biden has been proposing with the 1.9 billion. So uh, trillion, sorry. And you're going to have these, uh, uh, you know, this, that demand and tight supply, that supply is not magically growing um, right, right now, it is going to produce higher prices again. So if you look at that comparison, buying in October isn't gonna look so bad relative to March or April. Well, and the other part about it, right, is we're already, we've seen the trend happening, I don't know, maybe over the last seven, eight years where the term of loans has been extended out getting closer to 80, well, I shouldn't say it's not at 84 months. I think it's past, it's close to 72 months now, which that wasn't the case before. Yeah. Our right? stats say the average hit 70 for the first time last year. Okay. So, so 70. So that, that term number has been creeping up. Again, I, I always, I, I, this just worries me that in effect, us in the automotive space are also contributing to a bubble that will later burst whatever, five, seven, eight years. And now that's on us. And, you know, going like, look, this, this actually goes back to Jonathan Smoke, the university college student studying religious studies, making sure that you find passion and meaning to the work that you do so that it betters people's lives. I, I, I really do worry about the trajectory that we're on in the automotive space, that we are inflating our own market and we're doing it to ourselves because we're continuing to provide, you know, we're used vehicle prices are going to continue to go up and up inch, you know, little by little, $10 here, $20, $100. And we all know that you can never buy a used car, even if it has a thousand miles, you can't buy a used car that's more than a new vehicle. So new vehicle prices are going to rise. 
And then we extend out the terms. And again, now we now, now as we know, as history always tells us, the axiom of a, a car, it's a depreciating asset. So you push that term out to 84 months. I mean, man, you know, we're going to be responsible soon for, you know, a, a bubble bursting. And I, I don't know how good I'm going to feel about that. Well, I, you raise an extremely good point because uh, on the one hand, you can argue that the lengthening of the terms has helped affordability, at least mm-hmm. in terms of the payment. Because of course, if you have a longer loan, the payment and everything else is the same. The payment is going to be smaller. And so to a certain degree, if the terms are changing, that is enabling the inflation that otherwise maybe people would be negotiating harder or keeping right, those prices right. from going up. I, I'm not so certain that that the, the buyer is going to have that control because we're on an inevitable path with technology and innovation with vehicles that the cost of new vehicles is going to outpace in, in inflation. So we're sort of dealing with the fact that the new vehicle is going to be consistently more expensive. And they're, uh, having an evolution in the terms, I think uh, in and of itself, isn't necessarily a problem. Um, because one thing that I would argue is quite simply from an economics perspective, they wouldn't continue to lengthen unless it actually works from a risk and financial performance perspective. What do you mean by that? Meaning, um, lending the auto, the auto finance market is extremely sophisticated. It's incredible that it can cater to literally everyone from somebody that doesn't have a credit score to somebody with a perfect uh, FICO credit score. Lenders are able to predict and price the financing extremely well. And so we don't have, uh, you know, recurring credit crises related to auto loans um, because it's so, it's so predictable. So the fact that terms have been able to uh, lengthen and we've not seen credit deterioration while they've lengthened somewhat tells me that actually the market is doing a pretty good job of uh, predicting what that risk is and seeing that it's not uh, dramatically changing. But, and the other thing that I would add is that, okay, yes, it ticked up slightly last year and that was really driven by March and April. If you took those two months out of the year, we would not have hit 70. I really think we've, we sort of went through an evolution And that evolution related to the fact that actually vehicles are lasting longer, are higher quality, and are maintaining their value uh, much, much longer into the future. And so it's becoming more predictable about what the actual asset is worth, which helps in the recovery of the loss, which factors into the calculus of the financing. So I've become a big student and fan of uh, auto finance. Uh, Are there worries? Yes. You know, so I'll I'll put the religious kind of hat on. (laughs) Can people um, make bad decisions? Absolutely. Uh, In fact, I would say that one of the things that's a stark contrast between the real estate world and the auto world is the extent of knowledge, information, and education. Um, You know, uh, down to every, every personal finance advisor, anybody related to finance can read you exactly what it takes to qualify for a mortgage. No one can tell you what you should spend on a vehicle. It's, it's just not ingrained in, in our culture or way of thinking, but 
the concepts are exactly the same. There is a limit to how much debt a household can, can manage relative to their income. And if housing is taking up about a third of it, there's only so much left for everything else, uh, you know, including auto loans and leases and student loans and credit card debt. So there is a way to get more sophisticated. There is a way for consumers to make better decisions. Um, but I, you know, can you improve the system in a way that somehow also accomplishes 90, keeping 91% vehicle ownership rate and that anyone in the country can get access to a vehicle uh, the way they can here, I think it would be very hard to do without a dramatic change. So yeah, right. you both have to appreciate the, the, the negatives and how to make that better. And I think education and information uh, is a key part of that. But uh, on the term side, yeah, I think that there, there people need to understand that certain circumstances dictate making a decision and buying an 84 month loan may not be a good idea. Uh, I can tell you the simple math says that uh, you will never be uh, in a positive equity situation in normal times. So, so forget what happened last right, year. Right. But in normal times, you won't be in a positive equity situation if your term is more than 60 months unless you put a tremendous amount of, of money down. It's just you're working against the depreciation on the, on the asset. Well, so, you know, one of the things that you uh, and Cox Automotive have done in terms of trying to uh, provide better information and knowledge to the ecosystem is you guys have developed a vehicle affordability index to which uh, as I read from the press release, Cox Automotive and Moody's Analytics are launching the Vehicle Affordability Index that quantifies price movements in the new vehicle market in relation to the spending power of the U.S. consumer. Please explain this further, please. Well, it was basically we were asked to put together something that long ago had existed in the industry. Comerica used to publish uh, an affordability index um, that especially for those on Wall Street who are trying to make sense out of uh, can, are we running into a challenge that some of this demand can't persist? Uh, we, they, they wanted an update. update. So um, I've long been actually a partner with Moody's Analytics. Everywhere I've worked, I've, I've always been connected to their economists. Uh, they knew the data that we had. And, and so we worked together it is quite simply, we measure the number of weeks that it takes for the median income in the United States for a household to afford a new vehicle. So uh, we basically are looking at current estimated income. So that's where fiscal uh, changes this year um, had some impacts on income and what was happening in the economy. Um, then we're using our Kelly Blue Book data to look at the real transaction price on vehicles dealer track data on financing terms to know exactly what is the most typical loan, which is a 72 month loan with 10% down. Um, but there are lots of moving parts to that because there are prices, discounting incentives, interest rates, credit conditions, and income swings. So um, we really didn't know what we were going to see until we put it all together. Um, but it was very instructive because we found out that um, affordability did worsen last year. Um, and it was because this tight supply environment really caused that inflation, which you were talking about, to go up even more. And the true inflation, when you take into account incentives and actual discounting being lower, um, made it even worse. Interest rates helped to offset that a little bit, 
um, but not enough. And so when income support started to wane, especially uh, you know after July, that's where the numbers uh, started started to get worse. Um, so what, what that's, is, that's what the index is. What, what is the median income that uh, you have uh, calculated to be? You know, I'd have to look that up for you because uh, that that particular figure comes from um, you know monthly estimates. The census puts out an annual number. Part of Moody's uh, contribution is actually producing an estimate for each uh, kind of single month. And and the and and right now the weeks to purchase a new vehicle was thirty two weeks ish, right around there. Yeah, and it uh, it had been higher, but it 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 is trending down. While we're, so, while we're talking, I'll I'll pull it up and tell you exactly what it is. Okay, so I guess one of the things that I think about is if it takes thirty two weeks to purchase a new vehicle. You know now now I put my digital marketing hat on. So you know usually what they say is what um you know a, a buyer enters the market and they basically shop for well, thirty days. It works out to be what I think. I don't know. I, I forget actually the amount of hours now. I, yeah. As a matter of fact, you probably know that better than I do. I think Kelly Blue broke that down or Auto Trader bro- broke that down. But again, it's it's definitely not 30, 30 plus weeks. So now, you know, if I were to try to draw out some actionable items from if it takes a buyer 32 weeks, but digital marketers are looking at, you know, developing campaigns and dealers are looking at targeting customers within a 30 day cycle there's not much alignment w- with those, you know, with those two indexes. Yeah. And I don't think it, it's sort of appropriate really to use it that way. What it no, does okay. directionally uh, is tell you, is it taking more income to to purchase a vehicle? And so the reference point is really how it's changing over time. Um, so, Let's and to see. answer your question just a second ago, yes, it's 32 weeks, 32.2 in the latest index as of December, and that's using an income estimate for December of just shy of uh, $69,000. That's the median income, $69,000. Per household in the U.S. Yeah, I see. how the math works. But so what does that tell us? It, it doesn't really necessarily help you to size at a dealer level what exactly might be happening because okay. those, are, those are medians and averages that we're talking about. And so like what we were talking earlier with the K-shaped recovery, you're really hiding uh, what's going on in the actual segments that are dictating who's showing up and who's capable of purchasing an, a new vehicle. Um, and actually this is where there's also some commonality to the housing market, because mm. if you think about uh, new homes, um, in California, have you seen any entry-level new construction within 50 miles of you? Uh, probably yeah. not. Well, around me, I'm a little more in the suburbs. There are there are some uh, new developments. Not not a lot, but there's how there's a entry little. level would you say they are? Not entry level at all. Not entry level at all. That's my that's my point. And one of the ironies of this past year, when we've had so tight supply in such strong demand, what was the new vehicle segment that was weakest? The most affordable new vehicles, hmm. subcompact cars. We, we had plenty of supply. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have the consumer that could put together the credit and the 
uh, the down payment and the wherewithal uh, to purchase those uh, vehicles. Um, and so the, I think the where, where this is really going to evolve and help the industry is where we can get into really identifying the size of the pool of the buyers and really putting that economic data together to say, well, in reality, this segment typically has a subprime FICO score. So they're not paying the average interest rate of 4%, they're paying 18%, they're paying 20%. Uh, and that plays a big difference uh, in terms of how, what they can afford and let alone the huge income differences, of course, that exists. Is credit being factored into this vehicle affordability index then from Moody's at least, or? Uh, it is and it isn't. So we are every quarter reviewing to make sure that we're reflecting what the most typical term looks like and what the most typical down payment looks like. But um, those are being influenced by the typical new vehicle buyer has an above average credit score. So you're already dealing with the scenario that it absolutely does not reflect the challenges for a subprime segment, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So recap for me one more time then the main purpose of this vehicle affordability index. So it is expressing as, as we saw the number of weeks that it takes to buy a vehicle. Um, so it is giving you the perspective over time. Is it costing more with everything taken into account, prices, incentives, interest rates, uh, or is it costing less of the consumer's income? It's one step sort of away from being able to say, how much of the budget is it taking? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think getting to that budget level is really where we can get to that world to help people make better purchase decisions. But this was the logical first step to take. And it was more or less the way that Comerica had originally done it. How would you put together the next step, the next equation to figure out, to assess the budgets of individual households? It's connecting the dots. And um, so that means uh, starting with defining the segments. Um, so uh, the huge differences, obviously, that exist between somebody that's buying uh, a luxury vehicle and a subcompact car in the non-luxury segment. Um, so you've got credit differences, income uh, characteristics that are, gonna, that are going to influence that math. Uh, what we find is also uh, how they finance is very different. Like leasing isn't a part of what we did here because we wanted to keep it sim simple on the, on the credit side. But leasing absolutely expands affordability, uh, but leasing is almost exclusively for people with, with strong credit. Um, so it's, it's essentially only avail available to a portion of the market. So I think the real magic comes when we boil it down to the segments um, that individual vehicles are competing in. And then we use the data that, that we have available to us from Kelly Blue Book, from Dealer Track, uh, that tells us exactly what the demographics and the credit profiles look like. And that way we can then do the math and actually see what portion of the income is it requiring? Mm. And what does that imply for other debts that they might be able to handle and manage? And I think that's really where you're going to see why um, we're already in an affordability crisis for the industry, especially when you consider, um, you know, what was previously called entry level because it's disappearing in the new in the new vehicle market. 
Well, affordability crisis is aptly characterized. I would agree with that, at least maybe not now, but certainly it is coming that uh, vehicle affordability, you know, I, I don't know how old your kids are. Um, I don't have kids yet, but I certainly do worry that at some point it's like, yeah, you know, $20,000 and ain't going to get you much anymore, you know, and, and, and let's, let's not forget that with the proliferation of autonomous technology, right? That at some point now you're going to be able to buy an autonomous vehicle that's supposed to last 500,000 plus miles. That's, that's also going to cost you probably $150,000, which that basically just gets you a Toyota Camry. <laughs> that's right. We're on this inevitable innovation technology path that is going to make it even more of an issue uh, as, as we proceed. Uh, and of course, one of the challenges with affordability is the the uh, paradox, I guess, is probably the right word to use uh, of the fact that some would say we don't have an affordability challenge. There's plenty of demand, people who are willing to pay for, you know, an average sticker price uh, that's that's now at or, or uh, crossing fifty thousand um, dollars. There's plenty. There's plenty of demand. So how can you say we have an affordability crisis? Well, it's because we're shrinking the pool. And when you shrink the pool, mm -hmm. math works for the mm -hmm. smaller pool. It's just you suddenly no longer have as big a pool as you used to have. So if you if you want to achieve that $50,000 price and sell 18 million units, <laughs> you have to rethink the affordability because the pool just can't handle that. Word, word. Oh, great point there. Okay, Jonathan, I have one last question for you, sir. And business class listeners, this is going to be a new little segment on the show here. So Jonathan, you, you get to be the first, you get to be the, uh, the sacrificial lamb in this. Okay. This is called bedroom sessions, bedroom sessions, because the bed you make, you're forced to sleep in. And when you sleep in your bed, you, we like to dream in bed, right? Now I'm not going to get into the, like the spiritual elements of a dream, right? You're an economist. I like to consider myself a, 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 an economist enthusiast. Uh, you had mentioned Ludwig von, von Mises and Adam Smith. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of, the, of classical economic theory. So we still want to make this practical, okay? We still want to make this practical. So here's my question to you, and it's a very specifically phrased question. So please listen carefully. What would be the most meaningful dream that you would like to accomplish with your money? You have a dream. And if you want to make that dream a reality, the way, the way you can make that dream a reality is with your money. How, what would you like to accomplish with your money? Well, being a father, it's, it's providing for others. Uh, so it's, it's far less about accomplishing things for myself, but it's, it's actually really having a, a legacy and ensuring that I can have an impact kind of in the same way I described what my sort of quest was and why I didn't go down the academic path is because I wanted to help uh, other people. And in our world, it takes money to uh, to be able to help others, whether that be family or friends or what you're able to com uh, to contribute to your community. So, to me, that's 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 a real purpose of money. So it would be to help your family, your 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 kids. Uh, I would say that 
of course, top of mind would be my own kids, um, but also thinking more broadly about uh, those those who are in need, uh, you know, in the in the community that you live or in the in the world that you you operate. Um, and I've got a good example. You know, one of the things that uh, Cox um, Cox is a company that is extremely involved with the community locally, uh, globally. Um, and sets the example kind of continuously. And it's, it's one of those things that uh, if you find a way to contribute to the world around you, it pays back, uh, you know, multiple. And mm-hmm. it takes money to do that quite, quite often. And, but if you never have the ability to invest like that, you never see the, uh, the, the, see the results. So the dream is to then be able to put your you know, you make your investments towards community, towards programs that would better kids, the next generation. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Jonathan, how can people follow you? Well, you can look me up on Twitter at smoke on cars, uh, and virtually everything that either I produce or my team produces ends up in, uh, on Cox Auto Inc. in our Market Insights and Outlook section. But probably just Google Jonathan Smoke and you'll find me. And uh, how about a SoundCloud? Come on, DJ. DJ Smoke. Oh, yeah, you can absolutely find DJ Smoke on Spotify. Uh, Oh, come on, get out of here. Really? I publish lists. I have a current 2021 themes for auto, which appropriately starts with my favorite song closing out last year, which was F2020. Okay. Well, business class, I will put the link to that Spotify playlist on the episode page. So if you want to visit uh, that, uh, or if you want some tunes to listen to, uh, you can tune in to DJ Smokey Smoke. Jonathan, thanks so much for being on the show. Listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in. Be sure you tune in next time to the show. I got some great guests coming up. I have some big mini series that I'll be producing this year that actually seem to be a hit. If you haven't checked out some of the previous mini series of upward social mobility and home is where you park it, which is a van life mini series. Those two actually were very popular. And so I'll be producing more mini series later this year. Cheers. Prost. Chaim. Kipis. Nastravi. Salud. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsins. Gambe. Yamas. Vo. Salute. And Saudi to the customer experience. Hey, business class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Appreciate your listens. Be sure you're subscribed to the show to get further notifications on upcoming episodes. And if you haven't heard our van life mini series, visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash van life. And you can hear our four part series of living van life from starting out uh, and building your van all the way to retiring to van life. Here's a little snippet, a little trailer of that mini series. We'll see you next week. I have never felt like one spot is my home. The, the design of the van is, you know, a really interesting problem to solve because you do have to fit so much functionality in such a small space. My life was really built around, you know, making money and spending money. What I'm most passionate about is like empowering people to get outdoors. From Wisco Weekly, this is Home is Where You Park It, a miniseries on van life featuring Linnea and her dog, Akila. It has been the most transformative experience. Josh Teberge 
And so I'm at a point now where I'm building out my second, my second fan. Sam and Kate Moser. We celebrated our relationship by spending every minute together. We always felt that connection together. And Joe Cintron. I, I'm trying now to be more in the moment. What drives a van lifer to live in a tiny house, to forego a reliable, steady income, to forge the road ahead, and to not know where you will go, who you may meet, or what you might eat? The only certainty for van lifers is home is where you park it. Did I know this morning when I woke up that I would be doing a podcast with you? 